several months ago, actually it could have been even a year ago, I don't remember exactly when it was, we uh, as elders decided to start these responsive readings that we now do at the beginning of every worship service. And we did those for a very particular reason. Uh, worship is not meant to be a passive thing. Uh, even, even as we gather together and there is things always proceeding from this stage or the pulpit out toward you, it is never meant for you just to sit there and have intake. Uh, whether we are singing as we did this morning, even when, when Micah and, and Jeff are, are going to return and we have uh, music that is, is a little bit uh, more active, we, we, we know that even that is not something for us just to, to watch. We're, we're not listeners only. We're not called to simply listen to worship, but to engage in worship, to not simply hear the songs, but to sing the songs. You're not meant to just listen to other people pray, but we are called to pray with them, to use those first-person plurals rightly. You're not meant to just hear a sermon, but to actively think and ask questions as we go through it. And so we, we thought that there was no better way to start off a service than by making you actively participate in it, by calling you to respond to the reading that we are doing. We thought that that was a wonderful way to begin. And we had been reading through Psalms, and so we decided that we would just pick up with the Psalm that we were on, and, and we would continue with that. But we, we ran into trouble a couple months down the road. And, and many of you, I don't think any of you noticed, but we skipped a Psalm. We, we read Psalm 136 one day. 136, by the way, is the, the greatest responsive reading psalm in the Bible. Uh, this continual refrain for his steadfast love endures forever, for God's steadfast love endures forever. And we skipped from that all the way down to Psalm 138. We totally bypassed Psalm 137 for our opening reading. Scripture is quite an amazing thing. It is, it is filled with the highest of poetry that you can find. It, it's written, the stories are written and, and layered in such a way as to be very dramatic and, and to be revealing. It, it is by far the most epic portrayal of anything that you can find. And given all of that, it is still a very earthy book. It, just this week, if you were reading in a reading plan in Ezekiel, you came across some incredibly interesting passages. Passages that I would dare say, if I quoted for you without telling you where I got them from, you would be aghast as to the things that I said. And, and you would be ashamed to call me your pastor. And there would be audible gasps from the audience of the like I cannot produce on my own. And so if you knew that it came from Ezekiel, you'd be like, well, okay, that was Ezekiel. Ezekiel's weird, but you can't say that, pastor. The Bible is filled with this really earthy language. By the way, I'm not going to tell you what passages those are. You're going to have to read the book of Ezekiel to find those, but they're there. You can, you can find them. 137, Psalm 137, is sounding the same way. And we want to say very clearly why we, why we passed it up was not because we didn't think that it's the word of God. We do think that it's the word of God. We think that it's important to read it. It's not because we didn't think that it was a good thing to confess. For all of us to come to the psalm and to be able to confess it rightly as the word of God and as something that is indeed, even though it sounds difficult to say, a good thing. It certainly wasn't because we at Crossway are ashamed of what it says here. May that never be said of us. But simply because this was not going to be something that would foster our moving into worship. It would have created more questions that it could answer. But now, 
now we are in a position where we can actually answer some of those questions. And especially now as we take time to look at how the Bible portrays prayer, it's important that we come to this particular passage and read this particular prayer of the psalmist to God. So let us go and read Psalm 137. Psalm 137 says this, By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required songs of us, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. If I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed. Blessed shall he be who repays you for what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. Even this, friends, is the word of our God. Such psalms, which call down the recompense of God, the judgment of God, and the wrath of God, are said to be imprecatory psalms. They call for God's justice to be displayed in wrath against the enemies of God's people. This is what we mean both with the words recompense and imprecatory. imprecatory excuse me. Recompense, it, it's simply giving back to people what they deserve, whether in good or in evil, whether in judgment or in blessing, most often in judgment. And imprecatory simply means asking God for that. You're asking God to show his recompense upon sinful people. Clearly, that's what we have here. The question becomes, what should we say to these things? Should we pray like this? It's biblical. This is something that we should still engage in. How does this jive with the injunction to pray for our enemies in Matthew from our Lord? What does this say about the people of God? What does this even say about God himself? That he would hear a prayer like this. Hopefully today we can answer some of these questions. First, let us notice the setting of the imprecation. Let us know the setting of it. As we work through this psalm, we can see first that there was a time of loss here. The Jews claimed in 137 that they were sitting down by the water of Babylon. As we've talked about repeatedly, not only in Sunday school, but also from the pulpit, both the prophet Jeremiah and the preaching in the book of Lamentations, and even now, this is a song of exile. The people of God have been kicked out of their land. They have sinned grievously before the Lord, and the Lord has brought the Chaldeans, he has brought Babylon up against them, and he has driven them out of their homes. And so, even here, if they are going to sit down and they are going to weep, they must do it by the waters of Babylon. They've got to do it by the Euphrates. They've got to do it by the Kibar Canal. They cannot do it in their homes. There is a great deal of loss here. They can only remember Jerusalem, their great city, where their king was to reign, where their God was to be and dwell, where their promised land sat burning and defiled. They can only think back to that place. They have suffered a time of great loss. The only reaction that they could possibly have was to sit down and it says to, to weep. Therefore, secondly, it was a time also of mourning. 
said that their harps or their lyres they've hung up. Biblical terminology uses harp and lyre all the time. And part of that's difficult for us to imagine. When you hear harp, you, you probably conjure up some image of a fairly chubby angel sort of floating on this really puffy cloud, strumming that while he looks kind of serious. That picture of heaven is not altogether appealing. Maybe it is for you. I, I, I'm not going to judge that, but it's not terribly appealing to me. I don't want to be any chubbier than I am, and I don't play the harp exceptionally well. So the purpose of picking out on harps and lyres is the same thing that we read about not only a couple of weeks ago in the book of Revelation, in Revelation 5.8, where it says that the, the elders had in one hand bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, and in their other hand they had harps. But why harps all the time? Hopefully D.A. Carson talks about the harp in ancient Israel as being sort of akin to the fiddle in the Deep South. Anyone who's ever heard somebody fiddle before, not just play the violin, but actually fiddle, realizes that fiddling is not a mournful activity. Fiddling is, is a call to rejoice, a call to happiness. It makes you tap your toes if you aren't willing to get up and dance. The harp was meant to be the same thing. The harp is an instrument not of mourning, but an instrument only of praise and joy and happiness. It's a jubilant instrument. None of these things are appropriate at this point in time. They have been destroyed by Babylon. They have been cast down. And so what, what do they do? They say, we've hung them up. We, we've put them up. The, those instruments are no longer appropriate for the situation that we find ourselves in. We have not only had a time of loss, but it is a, a time of mourning. And thirdly, it's a time of captivity. It would be one thing if they were able to mourn. It would be one thing if they had loss and they willingly left because Jerusalem was destroyed, but they didn't just willingly leave. They didn't get to stay behind and rebuild, but Babylon took them away, forcibly took them away from their homes. In verse 3, for they're our captors. They were captive in a foreign land. They didn't go there willingly. They didn't leave by their own admission, but Babylon dragged them away. This leads, fourthly, into a time of mockery. The captors didn't just lead them away, but they required songs and their tormentors, mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. Now, this isn't this sort of happy anthropological, sociological study on the kind of music the Jews had. This wasn't a scholar who came up to them and said, you know, I've heard songs from all over the world, and I would really like to hear one of those songs of Jerusalem, just so I can compare it. To, like, this is meant to be a mockery of these people who are in great distress and peril. The picture you should have in your mind is one of those old westerns where the sheriff is overrun by the evil guy who comes in and after taking his gun away from him, points his gun at his feet and he says, okay, now dance, right? And he starts shooting bullets at his feet to make him dance. It's meant to dehumanize people. Getting people to do things that they don't want to do but you want them to do makes them puppets for you. It's a way to dehumanize them and to frankly, shame them. This is especially true when people are made to pretend to be happy, to pretend to be joyous, when they have nothing but sorrow and mourning. Each of these things builds on one another. It's not just that they have loss. It's not just that they have mourning. It's not just that they're captors, but that they're mocked on top of all of that. And so this leads finally into a time of protest. I say, how can we do this? 
even if they force us to, how can we relent and sing songs while they are keeping us captive here? Well, all we want is to go back to our homeland. All we want is to go back to Jerusalem, to know the city where our God dwells, to know the place where our king should reign, to know that all of the promises of God are true. All of that has been wiped away from us. We can't get to Jerusalem, so how can we sing? Says, Let my right hand forget its skill. Not forget its skill in war, not forget its skill in able to eat or tie the Velcro on their shoes, which is not actually true. Velcro is a lot later, but nevertheless. What did they want? He said, let my right hand lose its skill in playing the lyre and in playing the harp. I don't want to sing songs. Make my hand dumb. Make my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth so that I cannot sing songs. They wanted to remember Jerusalem. This is... A strange thought, but Jerusalem is the center of all, of all that Judaism is. This isn't like America, right? Unless you live in New York City, you do not think that New York City is America, okay? Even people who live in Washington, D.C., Washington, D.C. does not image all of America. Neither does Detroit, neither does Cleveland, neither does L.A., neither does St. Louis, neither does Bay City. None of those things is pure America, America is much larger than that, but Israel wasn't, and especially Judah was not. Judah was centered and focused on Jerusalem. It was their entire identity. It was the promise of God to give them land and to give them king and to give them security was found in Jerusalem. And the fact that all of that was taken away from them meant that all of their identity was gone. When he says, I do not set Jerusalem, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy, that's not saying that he wants Jerusalem more than God, but it's saying, if I don't have Jerusalem, I don't know how I can have God. If God is going to be with us, it will be in Jerusalem. By the way, the Bible never actually changes that. It talks about a new Jerusalem coming but it's Jerusalem all the same. If they will be with God, if they will know the promises of God, it will be in Jerusalem. So this is no place for them to sing a song. What then do they ask for? Simply ask for judgment to come down, both upon Edom and the Edomites and the Babylonians. The Edomites, those cousins of Jacob and Esau, or their brothers basically, so Jacob and Esau, the Edomites have come from Esau, and they, they were happy at the destruction that they saw at Jerusalem. And they were actually cheering on the Babylonians to raise Jerusalem to the ground. They were applauding the destruction of Jerusalem. And so the psalmist calls for God to remember that. And what's more, he calls for the Babylonians to be remembered for the grave injustice that they have been done. Listen to verse 8 who repays you with what you have done to us. This is reminiscent of Exodus 21, 22 through 25. This is, I believe, the principle that's being enacted here. Now, the setting of this is a little strange, and we'll get past that very quickly, but you'll quickly realize the passage and why I picked it. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm the one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. I think that the, the main gist of that's pretty easy, that what harm you do is the payment you shall make. 
it is very clear that the Babylonians were an incredibly fierce and ravenous people who destroyed people mercilessly. They were known for this, as were the vast majority of countries at that time. War didn't have anything like the Geneva Convention. There wasn't niceties done. Raping and pillaging and destruction were everywhere and flowed freely. Such atrocities, such as laid here, killing children, were known not only in 2 Kings 8.12, but in Hosea 10.14, in Hosea 13.16, and Nahum 3.10. All of those picture the killing of innocent children by killing them and crushing them against rocks. It is likely then that having watched their own children killed in this manner, what the people of Jerusalem, what this psalmist is asking for, is that God might refuse to give their tormentors what they want and would instead give them what they deserve, recompense. Do to them what they have done to us. And we read that and we realize how horrible that sentiment is. I would call for a little bit of caution in how we will prejudge what people actually call for until you have gone through what they have gone through until you have seen the things that they have seen, until you have lost what they have lost, they're probably not in a position to judge their anger and their wrath upon people who have committed such grave atrocities against them. That is the setting of the imprecation, and it matters quite a bit to understand why they are calling down this destruction on Babylon. But let's then talk through the softening of the imprecation. Some people look at this and they still say, this is... It's just too strong of language, and we want to soften it a bit. Now, such prayers as these, asking for God to give to people what they are due, and and specifically to outsiders, the judgment of God to rain down on them, they're not infrequent. Psalm 510, Psalm 610, Psalm 76, Psalm 919 through 20, Psalm 102, 15, 17, 13, 28, 4, 31, and on and on and on it goes. There's 40 or 50 instances where things like this happen in the book of Psalms. Not all of them sound as difficult as Psalm 137 do. The first one I mentioned, Psalm 510. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. That's an imprecation of a sense. It's an imprecatory prayer of a sense. It's not like Psalm 137. People don't have a problem with Psalm 510, but Psalm 137.9 is really violent and it's disturbing. And even given the historical circumstances, we would like the words there to be softened. We would like maybe a, a modern motto of, well, I wouldn't wish, wish that on my worst enemy, or something like that to be found in Scripture, but that's not what we have. There are three ways that people have sort of softened this and and thought through how this might not be quite as strong as it first seems. The first is contextual softening. They they soften the force and the bluntness of this passage by looking at the context. Now, some people, when they do this, they they say, well, this isn't really God's word. Some people mean by that that this is sub revelatory, that it doesn't actually belong in God's word, and that we should be able to just ignore it and get rid of it. There's a huge problem there. When we start looking at revelation and choosing what should be considered revelation because we like it versus what shouldn't be revelation because we don't like it, 
we no longer have revelation, but reflection. It no longer reveals God to us, but it simply reflects what we want God to be back to us. That is what we call making idols. And so that is wrong. But we can also consider this not the words of God because Scripture oftentimes depicts the hurt and the pain of people in very real ways. And we understand that these people have been hurt quite a bit and they're mourning and they have been in great pain. And if the historical situation that we have painted has actually come true, you can imagine the type of anger and frustration that they would feel. And some people say this isn't meant for us to model our own prayers after, but to hear how painful the Babylonians have, how much pain the Babylonians have caused to the Jews. After all, in Scripture, there's a lot of things that we read of that we shouldn't practice, even from godly people. We realize that Moses not following the word of the Lord and striking the rock instead of speaking to the rock was sinful. We realize that Gideon's testing of God was not good, that Samson's continual prodding and and pushing away of God was not right in his worldly desires. We know that even King David and his Lust and his murder was not something that we are to model ourselves after. And so in the same way, we can hear of their frustration, we can hear of their anger, but, but these aren't the words of God. These are the words of hurting and angry people. And while that is true, we should always understand that it's true. The context of that matters a great deal. It doesn't seem to be that way. Psalms aren't narratives, and we can't read psalms the way we read narratives. We realize that David's actions were wrong because of the the actual outcome of David's actions. Nathan comes to David and says, your actions were wrong. We have other passages that speak against it. As we're going to see, there are plenty of passages in the Bible that support this kind of prayer. There's no reason on the face of it that we should not take Psalm 137 as full and unadulterated word of God. But maybe it's not really God's word in that it's meant to be figurative. That it's meant to talk about the destruction of spiritual powers and realms and things like that. Again, while that's going to be true and I'm going to talk about that, I don't think that that's the case in this psalm. There's not a huge deal of metaphor built into this psalm. It's fairly straightforward and fairly literal. It doesn't mean it's actually literal. Whether they actually hung up their harps on trees, who knows? But they're certainly not going out of the way to present anything as grand metaphor or using word pictures in any outlandish way. It would seem odd for them to do this here. Perhaps with Charles Spurgeon, and secondly, we would think of this as prophetic, not so much bloodthirsty, but just proclaiming to the Babylonians what's going to happen. So you did to the Jewish people, so others are going to do to you. I'm not going to speak against Charles Spurgeon. I think that's correct. But I don't think that that actually addresses what's said here very well. If, if this is simply a prophecy, are we not to agree with the prophecy? Are we not to think that God's actions in bringing that prophecy about are good and holy and praiseworthy? I don't think that that softens it quite as much as people would like. The third one is what I'll call dispensational softening. And all I mean by that is that this is in the Old Testament. And there are plenty of things that happen in the Old Testament that we don't repeat in the New Testament. And there are plenty of reasons why we don't repeat it in the New Testament. 
And there are rituals and commandments and practices that occur in the Old Testament that for various sundry and very good reasons we just don't do in the New Testament. And maybe this is one of them. And that's backed up all the more by Matthew 5, 38 through 42. You have heard that it was said, Jesus says to people in the Sermon on the Mount, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You're not to hold so tightly to an eye for an eye and a tooth for the tooth that you want repayment for everything. You must learn to love people. Certainly, as I think that the basis of this cry for repayment is an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. We should hear what Jesus says there and at least let it temper any expectation that we would have to actually utter prayers like this. I have a lot of sympathy for this. A lot of sympathy. That we should be careful about the words that we speak and the harshness with which we speak those things. But I think that this misunderstands something very fundamental and it goes back to a very normal and a very unbiblical understanding of judgment. When you talk to many people out in the world, they will talk about the God of the Old Testament as being sort of bloodthirsty and angry and filled with wrath. But the God of the New Testament is described with words like love and mercy and compassion. I think that you radically, if that's how you conceive of the Old Testament and the New Testament, you have radically misunderstood the wrath and the anger of God. The wrath and the anger of God are not diminished in the New Testament. They are ratcheted up continuously and evermore ratcheted up. It is true that the mercy and grace of God is extended through Christ to all creation, and it's not limited to this very specific people of Israel. But the blood in the Old Testament, the judgment in the Old Testament, is simply meant as a metaphor. It is not the real thing where the New Testament then talks metaphorically. You've got those mixed up. The actual letting of blood, the actual destruction and the physical pain that happens in the Old Testament is a metaphor for the real, true, and lasting punishment of hell that is brought forward in bold letters in the New Testament. Continually in the Old Testament, the judgment of God is seen in bringing an end to people, bringing death to them. In the New Testament, though, death is not the end. Death is but the beginning of the torment, and that torment never ends. Jesus himself said, If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. For it is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes and be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and fire is not realize that the poking out of eyes was something that happened all the time to kings in the Old Testament as punishment. He's saying it is better to be punished like a foreigner. It's better to be punished like a foreign king than to go into hell forever with two good eyes and forever to be tormented by the worm, the snake, and to be tormented forever by the fire. That is not the punishment that the Old Testament hands out. That is far grander and far far bloodier. Revelation 19, 1 through 3. After this, I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. 
For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Who is the her there? The her there is none other than Babylon. Chapter 18. A mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And, listen to this, the sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpers will be heard in her no more. What happened to Israel, what happened to Judah, will happen to Babylon. And the people of God in heaven rejoice. And what does it say? Her smoke goes up forever and ever. The physical destruction that would be brought on Babylon is nothing compared to the destruction that will be brought forever in hell upon them. Secondly, not only, not only does this misunderstand the judgment between the two testaments, but the New Testament frankly uses language like this all the time. Not only in what passages I've just read, but in, in strange ways, in, in Luke 19, in the parable of the ten minas, Luke is, is recording a parable of Jesus where he is simply talking about how people are to use the good things that God has given to them. But at the beginning of this parable and at the end of this parable, Jesus sneaks in some extremely strange language. He said, A nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave each of them ten minas, saying to them, Engage in business until I come. Now, the rest of the parable is about that, but he sneaks this in in verse 14. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. The man receives his kingdom and comes back. He deals with the ten minas people. And then he says this in verse 27. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. It's the same kind of language. Galatians 1.8 If I or an angel from heaven were to preach to you a gospel other than the one that you have heard, let him be accursed. Like we, we hear that, but you, you realize what that means. That means let him be condemned forever to hell. If, if they show up, and these people who are bothering you continue to do it, if I do it, or even an angel from heaven were to do it, they are to be condemned. 1 Corinthians 16, 21 and 22. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Matthew 26, 24. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had never been born. Even in the Lord's Prayer, what do we think it means when we pray, Thy kingdom come? You pray, thy kingdom come? What are you asking for? Listen, kingdoms don't come peacefully. Jesus is very clear. The kingdom of God has suffered violence and suffers it till this day in Matthew 11. Those wars are won with blood. Gerhard Voss, speaking on this psalm, says this, or speaking on imprecatory psalms, said this, instead of being influenced by the sickly sentimentalism of the present day, and that's got to be softened a bit. Gerhard's going a little bit overboard. 
However, instead of being influenced by the sickly sentimentalism of the present day, Christian people should realize that the glory of God demands the destruction of evil. You can't have it both ways, guys. You can't. You can't want peace in heaven without the destruction of those who would stand against peace in heaven. You cannot have your cake and eat it too. There is no softening of this imprecation. But let's talk about the standards that we should have. What guide do we have if we are going to pray like this, if we should pray like this, if this is good to pray about, how should we handle ourselves in praying like this? And I'm going to talk about this in two different ways, both explicitly and implicitly. Explicitly means actually uttering imprecations. How should we do this? First, we have to understand what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 38 through 48, as I read previously, stands. We are not overwhelmed with our first thought being everything must be fair and equal. My kids suffer from that disease, the fairness disease. Listen, we don't want fairness. We're Christians. Fairness means hell for us all. We want mercy and we want grace. And Jesus instructs us in the first place to pray for those things. You ought to pray for those things. If the first thing that comes to your mind when evil happens to you is, God, I hope you get them, beware lest you be gotten yourself. The measure that you use will be used to you. Your first instinct should always be mercy. And certainly, any sense of imprecation needs to be tempered with the sense of God's mercy to you. And secondly, we need to understand the biblical principle that underlays this in an eye for an eye. That means that the justice that God hands out is equal to the actual thing that has gone wrong, the injustice that has been served. That means that as we go into our potluck, you do not take to call down imprecation upon the person who takes the last brownie. I don't care if it was the last brownie. You don't get to call, like, you can say, well, I hope someone takes his last brownie someday, or he drops it. Okay, you can say, God, let him drop that brownie. No one wins. You can do that. But you don't get to go off of the rails and cry down the very wrath of God in all of its fury and anger on people because they have slighted you, because they've cut you off in traffic. This is why saying things like, go to hell, man. Hell's not a swear word, right? There are very few things that Christians can say that are worse than that. And friend, those words carry with it a great deal of gravity. And if you use those, you don't know what you're saying, and your ignorance is not good. Understand the biblical principle of an eye for an eye. Third, realize that we are explicit in calling down God's judgment on people when we call down for God's justice. Many people like to quote Amos 5.24, let your justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. But realize that that is good and right, and civil rights leaders who use that were good and right to do that. And what they used it for was saying that there are social structures in our world that are inherently unjust, and they should be overturned, and they should be made just. And those social structures, by the way, still stand today in a number of ways. And yes, they should be overturned, and yes, they should be done away with. Amen and hallelujah. But realize also that if God's justice is to be shown there, that it also means that his wrath must come on people who continue to oppress without relinquishing that oppression. 
You cannot think of this simply as a social justice, but it is also a personal justice. If you are going to pray those things, and you should pray those things, you are praying for God's wrath to come upon people who do not know repentance and who continually refuse to give people the justice they deserve. This brings us then to implicit. And while I think that we are rightly put off by such statements, we must, friends, we must implicitly, with every preaching of the gospel, preach this kind of violence. And that might be unsettling to you, but this is baked into the gospel. The Jews here were praying that God's wrath might be demonstrated against people who stood against God's people, who stood against Israel, who stood against Abraham's seed. In Genesis 12, 2 and 3, we have this. This, by the way, is a passage that Paul says is the gospel. Scripture preached the gospel beforehand to Abram when he said this, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Lest you miss that, that blessing bread, the sandwich in there was cursing. Everyone who holds you in contempt, everyone who dishonors you, everyone who stands against you, I will curse them. The people here were praying for nothing more than what God had already called himself to. And just as Israel was the embodiment of Abraham, so Jesus Christ is the fullest and the best embodiment of Abraham. Jesus says this in Matthew 10, 32-33. Everyone, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. To acknowledge Christ is to acknowledge not only who he is in God incarnate, but what he has done in the salvation of souls on the cross. That he has taken on this wrath of God, the wrath of God that has shown so fierce and mighty here, he has taken on for us. Just as Doug has talked about already this morning, that there is this, this need of repentance. We are all sinful. None of us shall escape this punishment. This is ours. This is ours. We deserve it. Each and every one of us deserves nothing less than this, if not more than this. To understand then that the only way of escape is to entrust ourselves to Christ so that when we stand in heaven before the throne room, we have a great high priest who will intercede for us. And he says, I will acknowledge you before men, but if you deny it, I will deny you before then. I will look at you and I will say, I don't know who you are. I will not plead your case for you. You are on your own. And in doing so, Christ does only what was foretold. In Genesis 3.15, what do we read? As, as the judgments are handed down in the fall, Eve took and ate the fruit from the serpent, gave to her husband, and in bringing down the curse upon Eve, there is that glimmer of hope in 3.15 that her seed will stand against the worm, will stand against the snake. The snake will bite his heel, and no doubt killing him. But in doing so, what does the seed do? He crushes his head. Jesus 
was bitten by the snake. Yeah, yeah, he died. But in rising from the grave, he will crush his head. Friends, realize that when you stand against Christ, you align yourself with Satan. If you stand against Christ, if you deny him, you align yourself with the father of lies who has been a liar from the beginning. You align yourself with the very snake in the beginning. You align yourself with one who will have his head crushed. And I guarantee you, I guarantee you, your head will not escape. The children of Satan will have their heads crushed as well. And they will all fall in the same one, same way. Let us run to Christ for mercy today. We're not escaping from this. We are called here to know the mercy and the glory of Christ who has taken on the very penalty that we deserve that we can be freed from it. Run to Christ for mercy, for there is no mercy without him. God will not look down upon you and take it easy on you because you have a nice smile. There is nothing in your life that is worthy of him showing you an ounce of mercy for. Let us run to Christ for protection. For without him, we are naked and unprotected from God's wrath. Let us go and then tell others where to find that protection as well. For certainly a great destruction awaits all those who will stand against the Lord and his anointed. Friends, we pray this. We pray this in warning. We pray this over ourselves, and we pray for God's mercy and grace to be shown, but we also pray, even so, come Lord Jesus, knowing that when he comes, he comes to tread a winepress, knowing that when he comes, he comes with a sword, knowing that when he comes, he comes in judgment, knowing that when he comes, he comes for those who do not know him without mercy. So let us plead in mercy to everyone, come and know Jesus, the rock on which you will be safe because others who do not know him will be broken against that same rock. Let's pray. And Father, we do not desire the destruction of the nations. We do not lift them up asking for your wrath to be all-consuming against them. Rather, Father, what we ask for is that your grace might be made known to them. For your word that says that Babylon will be judged also tells us that from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language, you have people who will know you, who will call upon you for salvation. We pray that we can be agents to go out and to spread your gospel, that people might hear the good word of the Lord. But Father, we are not so blind as to see that people who stand against you deserve your wrath and punishment and let it never be said of us that we think that that wrath and that punishment, no matter how severe, no matter how ugly, no matter how distasteful it might seem to us, is not well-earned and deserved. We pray for your justice, Father, that it is known and it is seen to be just. But we pray that we might not taste of it. So, Father, keep us in your hands. Keep us in the Lord Jesus Christ where we have protection let us not stumble over him and be broken. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.